Welcome back to DC, DC EKG with Eric Uland and myself, Joe Grogan, continuing the discussion with Tyler Goodspeed. Tyler, uh, in our last discussion, we were talking a little bit about the U.S. economy or a lot about the U.S. economy, and you touched upon this idea of Joe Sixpack, uh, John Q. Public, understanding more about inflationary environments than the experts and academia frequently or the talking heads. Uh, you know, it kind of highlights the fact that we're in, you know, maybe they're the the tip of the spear, or I don't want to mix my metaphors, but like they're the nerve endings about what's really going on in the economy. And a lot of Americans, the majority of Americans, have never been in an economy like this where inflation is so high and persistent. Personally, I'm older than you. Uh, I don't, my entire adult life has been low interest rates. So I'm accustomed to credit card decisions, home buying decisions, car buying decisions, shopping uh, based upon that environment. And, you know, going to the farmer's market or the grocery store with my kids, it's interesting to watch them react. They're noticing price increases in, in real time as myself. I mean, and they're young, they're little. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon of, first of all, the consumer knowing more than the experts, and second of all, what do you think about this real-time education Americans are going to be getting on inflation moving forward and how it might be disruptive? Mm. Yeah, so it's it's really fascinating. I, I started looking at researching this uh, last late last year because we we had some survey data going all the way back to 1960 of consumers, and we actually have survey data of professional economists going back to 1946. Uh, and so we but we can we can do apples to apples comparisons going back to 1960. And it's super interesting to know that the the pros do an okay job. They're certainly much more accurate than consumers over the long term. Uh, they're, I can't reject the hypothesis that their average error is zero, meaning they're unbiased. They're over-predicting inflation as often as they're under-predicting inflation. But that performance of the experts is entirely driven by periods of low and stable inflation. When inflation is high and when inflation is changing substantially. So either you're moving from low and stable to high inflation, or you're moving from high inflation to disinflation, such as in the 1980s. Not only do the consumers do a better job than the experts, the consumers are also passing every standard statistical test of a good forecast. So there are errors. If they make a mistake in forecasting inflation, that error is not persisting. They're correcting. <laughs> Actual inflation is moving one for one with the consumer's forecast. So that, that I think is really interesting that once inflation gets above a certain threshold, the consumers are really paying attention to it. They're incorporating it into their everyday decision-making. That actually makes the task of getting inflation back under control much more difficult because inflation is, is embedded in expectations. High inflation is embedded in expectations. Curiously enough, the experts who did the worst um, in forecasting the great inflation of the 1960s and 1970s were, were academics and government economists and Federal Reserve economists specifically. <laughs> Do you have uh, any the, thesis why that, that was and perhaps is today? After all, the Biden administration forecast inflation 
a year ago at 2.3% in its budget, and then this year at 2.4% in its budget. So they, too, have already blown the call twice pretty dramatically. Yeah, so I have, I have two, two explanations. One is lack of sufficient skin in the game. So consumers have a lot of skin in the game to get inflation right once inflation has, has become quite noticeable because they have a budget constraint and higher groceries, higher rent, higher gas uh, impinges on that budget constraint. The professionals who did the best in forecasting high inflation in the 1960s and 1970s were economists with labor organizations. Now, why might that be? Well, if you're in the business of negotiating multi-year wage contracts for thousands of union workers, you'd probably have, you should probably have a pretty darn good idea of what you think prices are going to do over the over the coming years. And so that's one hypothesis: is that skin in the game counts. And actually, over the long run, the the experts with commercial banks did do an okay job. And I think there is because you know if you're in the business of extending multi-year home loans personal loans, home mortgages, then you should probably <laughs> should probably no, invest in, in figuring inflation. out. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. What's going to happen? Um, the, exactly. Years. The other factor is that a lot of the academic and government and Fed economists rely heavily on models and models can do mathematical models. And I think or statistical models. And so I think those can Models can do a good job predicting macroeconomic variables when those macroeconomic variables are moving in a very stable, consistent way, but they really struggle to, to perceive or detect regime changes um, because they're you know, based on historical data. Yeah, that's a, we should do a, we should have a conversation about models, uh, COVID transmission models and yeah. illness yeah. models statistical models for economics, um, but to climate point, change models. I mean, all these models are, are it would be, it'd be an interesting conversation. Yeah, especially yeah. because, as, as you just pointed out, they're so weighed down by looking backwards. Mm -hmm. They have so much prevalence towards valuing and probably overvaluing historical experience and past trends rather than attempting truly to look forward based on current circumstances and a smart appreciation about trends and what could happen over the next medium range or long range. Yeah, I, absolutely. And that's, that's why I, I consider myself an, an historian as well as an economist, because sometimes, you know, the, the model's not going to, not going to know this stuff. I mean, the model, if you estimate it over the past 20 years, as, as Joe said, we've had low and stable inflation since, since the mid 1980s. So a statistical model, an econometric model is just not going to, it's going to see a blip in inflation and think we're going to have mean reversion. Whereas if you've studied the experience of the 1960s, 1970s, you, you have a sense of what the trajectory might be. Right. And certainly when it comes to inflation right now, again, for example, Congressional Budget Office, that's exactly in their forecast. They come back to a mean median that's based on what's happened over the past 30 plus years. Right. So let's let's talk about moving forward for a second, Tyler. I mean, you as a historian, if we look at our debt to GDP ratio, the only time we've had a or last time we've had a level like this. I mean, maybe you can go back further, but last time is World War II. So the last time we had a debt to GDP ratio like this, uh, we were in a 
existential conflict against mass murdering psychopaths in Japan and Germany. And we've been relatively uh, peaceful, uh, prosperous, and yet we have managed to spend an inordinate amount of money. Uh, and how worried are you about this and the commitments we've made, not just the money that's spent, but the commitments we've made moving forward? Where do you see this ending? It does not look like we are going to have zero deficits moving forward. It does not look like we're going to be able to pay off the debt. How do you view debt and the debt-to-GDP ratio and what it may do uh, to the U.S. economy moving forward? Mm. Right. The the experience of, of the period after 1945 is is on the one hand encouraging, but unfortunately probably not to be replicated because we had over a 20 year period after 1945, we rapidly reduced our debt to GDP ratio by about 80 percentage points. And we did it in part with some surprise inflation. I wouldn't recommend doing that. I mean, that is just a massive, talk about a tax, that is a massive distribution, uh, redistribution of resources to debtors. And the biggest debtor in the world is the United States federal government. Uh, we did it in part with what's called financial repression, things like maintaining capital controls. I, I wouldn't recommend that at all. I think that's that's not healthy for capital markets. Uh, and But we also did it through higher growth. Uh, actually, a substantial portion of the reduction in the, our debt to GDP ratio was from higher growth. Unfortunately, the growth tailwinds that we had in the aftermath of 1945 are probably more like headwinds today. So one was favorable demographics. We had a, a population boom. We had rising female labor force participation. And we had a big productivity growth surge in the aftermath of 1945. Uh, unfortunately, today we have some demographic challenges. We have the peak cohorts of the baby boom generation reaching retirement. We have low and actually from for, for males, we have declining prime age labor force participation, and we've had very weak productivity growth. In fact, over the past year, we've had terribly negative productivity growth. We had kind of reversed that trend in 2018, 2019 under the Trump administration, but now we seem to be back in a low productivity growth world. So I think it's it's hard to grow your way out of debt with those, with those growth headwinds. Uh, in terms of, am I worried about this? I mean, well, I, yes, I'm worried. I'm worried more today than I was a couple of years ago because one, one of the effects, one of the somewhat negative effects of low and stable interest rates was that it meant the United States federal government could borrow substantially at relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. um, that was quite sustainable. Uh, but in a rising rate environment, in fact, you could probably say that a debt to GDP ratio of 80% in or 90% in, in 2019 was, was possibly more sustainable than that debt to GDP ratio of 40% in 1983, simply because of the cost of servicing that debt. Uh, but now with rising rates, I think it really complicates the fiscal picture moving forward because you know, we have $30 trillion in federal government debt outstanding. So every Every one percentage point increase in in interest rates that's you know that's three hundred billion dollars extra a year in interest payments. That's a, that's a lot. It it sure is. And our first segment we talked a little bit about uh, or a lot I should say about Liz Truss and her effort to go for growth. 
now we're here talking a little bit about the United States and the need to, to go for growth as part of dealing with pretty significant debt and deficit problems. Over the course of the next couple of years, Republicans will control one House of Congress. Democrats will have control of the other House of Congress. You've got a Democratic president. What should Republicans be thinking about trying to do here in uh, controlling you know, one half of one third of the government uh, in Congress, as well as setting the stage for 2024 and hopefully being in charge again in 2025, the sorts of policies that we should be talking about. You listed out a few in the last segment. I'm just wondering how folks should be maneuvering here over the next 24 months uh, up on Capitol Hill if you were giving them advice. So I think that there's no such thing as a free lunch, but there are relatively cheap lunches. And one of the relatively cheap lunches, at least in terms of, at least from a revenue perspective, is a deregulatory agenda. I mentioned the, the importance of, of a deregulatory agenda on the domestic energy production front, but there's there are a lot of areas in which uh, one could return to the type of deregulatory agenda we were pursuing in the Trump administration, including, of course, healthcare. Uh, but I think that's something that, that Republicans could be prioritizing. The other thing is when I'm looking at the supply side of the U.S. economy, because to get growth, you need to increase the, the productive potential of the U.S. economy. So I would be eyeing things like the, the expensing of equipment uh, investment that I mentioned. So if you buy a new piece of machinery, you can, you can write that off in the year in which you incur the cost, but also probably to expand that to include other asset types, things like structures. So that's commercial buildings, that's mines, that's oil rigs. So when you invest in one of these expenses, expensive pieces of productive capital equipment, uh, you, can, you can write that off from your tax liability. Um, and I would look to incentivize increased labor force participation, not only with making some of those marginal personal income tax rates permanent, but also to be thinking about certain benefit programs to which it might be appropriate, might make sense to attach work requirements. So I think those would be off the bat some things that I would be prioritizing. And if you want to offset some of the static revenue costs of some of these tax provisions, I'll give you two right now. One is to, to fully eliminate the, the, the state and local tax deduction. And the second would be to, to probably fully eliminate the mortgage interest deduction. Those are two very expensive tax expenditures that disproportionately benefit the highest income households in high tax, high regulation states. And those two, just, just eliminating those two provisions alone could could completely offset the static static revenue cost of the the investment expensing provisions that I just right. suggested. Meanwhile, though, um, you know you've got the Democratic leadership coming from high tax state, high tax blue states. You know, and Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, the the feds, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac said they're going to be backing even higher uh, yeah. higher value mortgages now in order to benefit blue states and and real estate purchasers of of million dollar homes so it doesn't seem like the biden administration is going to take your advice on or at least the democrats are going to go along with that if the republicans push on it but uh clearly the salt was a big the salt deduction elimination there was a 10-year uh shutdown right tyler that trump pushed it was until December. So the bill was passed December 2017, and that provision expires December 31st, 2025. Got it. Okay. Um, look, we don't have a, a, a lot of time left, but just just briefly, 
Do you uh, want to talk a little bit? Uh, is this going to imperil the reserve currency of the U.S. dollar, uh, the the currency status? Will China take over? It seems like there's a lot of, you know, sick economies. How da- how dangerous is this situation for the U.S. to get dethroned as the premier economic power right now with the with the world's reserve currency? On the China question first, I don't envision the renminbi becoming a a serious rival to the U.S. dollar anytime soon, because at the end of the day, China maintains capital controls, so they control your ability to bring capital into into China or out of China. So in the 2000s, China was trying to prevent capital inflows over the past seven, eight years or so, they've been trying to prevent capital from leaving China. So that makes it very, very unlikely that the the, the renminbi is going to become a serious challenger to the dollar because you need liquid, open capital uh, capital markets uh, in order to get to, to be a reserve currency. In terms of other rivals, I think the only serious rival at the moment would be the European Union because they have an open capital account, they have a a deep and liquid market for sovereign debt and and other financial instruments, but it's nowhere near as deep or as liquid as the market for US treasuries because it's fragmented. So there's no common European Union debt, there's Italian debt, there's German debt, and those markets are big, but they're just nowhere near as big as as the market for US treasuries. However, that said, Go ahead. I was going to ask, lots of people at least talk a little bit about what's going on in cryptocurrency and, you know, these new sorts of instruments. Are those a potential alternative down the line for the dollar and our role as a reserve currency? I'm skeptical of that simply because we've, we've seen since the Russian invasion of Ukraine that Western cap, Western monetary authorities do have a capacity to to intercept some of those some of those assets uh, if push comes to shove. Um, however, I do think that the extensive use of our ability to sanction financial entities, our ability to um, sanction, to impose third party sanctions. Utilizing the dollar by utilizing the dollar's central central role in the global economy has incentivized and will incentivize uh, will continue to incentivize other central banks to diversify their their reserve holdings. We've sort of seen that already with a lot of nefarious regimes, including China's, Iran's, Venezuela's, Russia's, and I think that we'll see more of that just to sort of try to hedge your bets a little bit by diversifying your portfolio of reserve, reserve currencies and reserve assets. Okay, so we are over time. Last question, it's gotta be very brief. Favorite movie about any financial situation or event, trading places, what, what's your favorite uh, financial movie? You know what, I was, gonna, I was gonna say perhaps Wall Street or Margin Call, but now that I think about it, I'm probably gonna have to say Mary Poppins. And why is that? Because I like the idea, they're in the bank and they have the tuppence, and the tuppence is going to go finance uh, railroads and and shipping and all sorts of things around the world, 
And then there's a little bit of a lesson on uh, on on how bank runs get started in there. So I, I actually think I'll, I'll have to say Mary Poppins. All right. That's great. Uh, maybe I should have thought of It's a Wonderful Life when I thought about that question. Yeah. Tyler, this is great. I wish, uh, I look forward to a future conversation. I'm sure Eric does too. Absolutely. This is always a blast for me and I always leave these conversations with plenty to think about. Thanks for coming on DC EKG. Hey, great chatting with you guys. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate it.